0: prince and old lady shade oh sorry it's you well i wasn't expecting you but seeing as you're here um yeah i have a another episode it's an interview i conducted with mick wall iron maiden biographer back in august of 2022 uh, it was originally released on his podcast, simply known as Mick Wall, and I did post about it on Twitter and Facebook, in fact. Um, but you might have missed it if you don't follow me on any of those platforms, so um, here it is for your listening pleasure. That seems to be my new phrase now. I don't like it. I, w- I want to get rid of it. I rid- uh, have to get something else. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh. <laughs> Mick Wall and I discussed Iron Maiden from their inception in the late 1970s to the present day and even seasoned maiden heads like me can learn something from this and maybe you will and maybe you've already listened to it on his podcast and you don't want to listen to this so you can skip it if you like i don't mind whatever uh or maybe you didn't hear it and you want to listen to it now go for it go for gold or maybe you did hear it and you want to listen to it again whatever the fucking thing is i don't care just whatever. Um here it is anyway. Uh Mick Wall talks Iron Maiden. Young fella. There you are.
1: Sorry, my phone is is dinging. Hang on.
0: All right. Popular man
1: <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm just looking to see if it's Madonna okay or, um, Bruce Springsteen. Um,
0: Say hello to Bruce from me. He'll know what it means.
1: You know the last time you saw um oh hang on, let me just do this, hang on. Oh, you know when you're trying to type fast. Well, I mean, I know I don't type fast because my kids take the piss when they see me on the phone, but (laughs) but for me, typing fast, right, I'm going to turn this thing off. How are you?
0: Very well, thanks. What were you going to say there the last time I saw?
1: I was going to make some feeble joke and I couldn't think of a famous person (laughs) or a famous woman. Um, fair, and then I was going to say, then I was going to say Johnny Sexton. I thought, no, that's not going to work. That makes me <laughs> sound weird. Um, do I need, I, I was just thinking as I was doing all this, do I need to do anything here or are you in charge now? You've got it all under control.
0: How are you hearing me from your, from your laptop speakers? Yeah. Do you have a pair of headphones or earphones of any sort?
1: Uh, I got these. These are Bose. Yeah. Uh, but there's no, I mean, there'd have to be, we went through this last time, I think, didn't we? There'd have to be Wi-Fi, wouldn't
0: they? Are exactly. they
1: Bluetooth? I, I remember we did, hang on, let me try.
0: Hello, 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 hello.
1: Hello? You're yeah. connected?
0: You hear we're me through all? the headphones? Excellent. Well, wow. you hear me? I can indeed, yeah. Frozen. Okay, no, we're oh, good, we're
1: good. No, go on, hang on, let me turn the volume up. Keep talking, Fergal.
0: Cool. Are you? Can you? Can you record this like you did the last time? You had some app you could record your voice onto, and you sent it to me. Do you remember? If you if you can't, it doesn't matter. We'll just use Zoom. But there's no uh, issue there.
1: I'm trying to remember. I've got a weird. Hang on. My garage band is popping up. Why is it doing that? Hang on. Do you want to use the audio device? Yes. Okay. Um, did I record it? Through GarageBand, like I would have done one of my own pods last time. Is that what? And I sent you the MP3?
0: Yes, that's it, exactly.
1: Okay. Do you want to give me a second and I'll do that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Right, hang on. I hadn't uh, come in running around like a blue ass fly, as always. I wasn't thinking about the technical aspect. And then as I was making a quick coffee before I came to do this, I suddenly thought. Hang on! Didn't we have a bit of messing around last time?
0: With you... you know, I should have thought of it myself as oh, well.
1: Hang on, I can't hear a word. I've got the hang on. You see what a fucking idiot I am. I'm I'm <laughs> talking to you, but I don't have the headphones on, so I can't I was gonna... hear you. Just laughing at me.
0: I was saying, wait, I should have t- I should have warned you in advance as well. So,
1: yeah, well, I, I, you know, I agree, Fergal. I mean, the way I see it is, it's your fault. You know what I mean. <laughs>
2: It's all your fault, mate. Right, let me see how we go here. Ah, here we go. Here we go now. Right, um. Bigara. Right,
1: bear with a brother. So am I? Am I recording both of us? Should I put it? I mean, I've only got the one microphone, so I just have one input, shouldn't I?
0: No, you'll only be recording yourself. Yeah.
2: Right.
0: right. Just let me know when you press record, and I'll do the same.
2: Yeah.
1: I'm just going to do a quick trial run further. Hang on.
0: Yeah, cool. Go ahead.
1: La, 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 la. Diddly, 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 diddly. I reckon that will do it. Excellent. So do you want me to intro this as I would my own podcast?
0: Yeah, go ahead.
1: Right, on the count of three, I'm going to start recording, okay? Yeah. One, two, three. Hello and welcome to, uh, I was going to say a special edition of the Mick Wall podcast, but of course they're all special, (laughs) and none more so than when my guest is himself, the green man from Fair Dublin Town. The one and only, please God, Fergal <laughs> Trainer. How are you, Fergal?
0: I'm oh, very well, Mick. Thanks for that introduction. Um, they get better each time, I must say.
1: Well, I, 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 I aim high. You know, I, I'm not one to just bash things out. You know.
0: Yeah, so I can see from your latest book, which I've read a few uh, stories from already.
1: Oh, oh, Be- I'm going to ask you about that. But before I do, um we're Zooming as I'm recording you on the audio or whatever I'm doing. But we're also Zooming. So yeah, does this me. mean, does this mean people
0: will see this? Well, not unless you want them to. I don't know if anyone needs to see my unmade bed and my clothes horse, but uh, oh, <laughs> I don't mind. What?
1: No, I lost you there. What was
0: that? I said, huh? I don't know if I. I don't know if anyone needs to see my unmade bed on my clothes horse, but uh, I don't mind if they do end up seeing.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I could. I mean, uh, you've got an unmade bed. I've got an unmade head. You know, <laughs> I, I I've been, I've been, uh, I've been down in the hole. The, the wife and kids have been away in Cornwall, while I try and finish my fucking Eagles book. Um, and so I haven't had to dole myself up for anybody consequently this i see
3: (laughs) yeah Yeah. i I was gonna get some
1: makeup on for you but in the end i just ran out of time
0: no it's all right it's okay i hope you're gonna call it your fucking eagles book that'd be a great hype
1: (laughs) before we get on to that though tell me so i i you uh you got a copy of down and out in london and la i did and did you read any of it yet? Don't I've lie read, to
0: me. I've read about five stories from it so far.
1: Wow. So you're really gripped.
0: Well, I was actually in the middle of another book, so I picked it up.
1: Had a oh! Glance. oh, well, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. But what was the other book?
0: Uh, it was a book by a man called Brian Gewirtz, <laughs> he, was a, he was a writer for WWE or the WWF uh, wrestling company. Um, and he became quite close with Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, and now works for him in his production company uh, to this day. So um, that's whose book I'm reading.
1: Sounds a little bit gay, but uh, <laughs> only to be expected from yourself, you
2: know.
0: It's well, we you live know, in 2022. That... Gay is not an insult these days. No, Come on.
1: no, no. Well, I didn't mean it as an insult. I'm just—it's a compliment, really. You know. Um. So anyway, uh, I, I'm going to take, a, but the five stories you read. Which was your favorite?
0: Um, the Santa Claus one jumped out at me. So initially, I thought it was another autobiography. I don't know why I thought that, but I, I see that some of the stories are from your childhood. Um, some of them are they look straightforward autobiographical, and some of them I think are symbolically autobiographical. Would that be fair to say? <laughs>
1: um, they're all autobiographical, but um. They don't adhere to any autobiographical rules. Um, A couple of them do. A couple of them do, particularly the the childhood ones. Um, There didn't seem to be any need to put any slant at all on those. They did it all by themselves. Um, The other things veer between me just having a powerful urge to write something down. and I suppose you'd call it whimsical. They don't. They don't. There's not much whimsy in the book, but whimsical in the sense of um, just letting my imagination run free. None of those stories were written for publication. They were never re- uh, written to be shown to anybody. Or oh, look what I did, you know. Yeah. It was just uh, uh, a compulsion. Comp- I have compulsive writing disorder uh, which <laughs> compels me to write any old bollocks that comes into my head cwd um, that's 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 the one yeah there there, there, are, there are there are there are more sufferers from that than you might know
0: <laughs> Yeah, but well, we, we
1: keep it we keep it on the down low you know
0: i think neil young might have that the speed with which he releases albums these days uh put a, put a cwd going on there
1: yeah, I quite like it. I, I I've always loved this idea of being able to um, bash it out. You know, I love these guys that uh, go in and do an album. You know, in like five days. I, I love that idea. You know, just that energy. Um, mm. The closest I've come to it professionally is when I've written. Um, Completely opportunistic books. The first one, I uh, not the first one, but what the first one I did that was any good uh, was John Peel. I, I wrote that in two weeks. Yeah, uh, he he just died, and uh, I was told if you could do it in two weeks, we'll put it out. And I thought there's no way you can do a, write a book in two weeks, but I said yes. I needed the money, and I did it. And it was yeah. it, it was a trip. It was a trip, and then I did that again when Lou Reed died in 2013. Um, two weeks, a complete trip. I remember the final afternoon standing up as I typed because I I had to leave at a certain time. So I was going to London to interview Ozzy Osbourne. Okay, and. Uh, so it was a trip, you know. It was a trip. It was sort of like I would do all my books like that if I could, but because no one wants me to, you know, they don't, it's not like it has to be done or we can't have the book. You know, you can't fake it. You can't fake that kind of urgency, that sort of gun to your head.
0: And do you find you work uh, better with the pressure like that, the gun to your head?
1: Always. I mean, this yeah. Eagles book. I did the deal for this Eagles book back in 2018. It was this time of year when I was writing this big, long proposal. I had this, um, you know, this idea to write this tremendously epic, monumental book. And I didn't sit down to start writing it till this year. And in the meantime, I'd written about five other books. And so uh, this hasn't been done in two weeks, I wish. <laughs> but it has been done at some speed, shall we say. Um, and yeah, I do prefer it. I, 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 I do prefer it. Both ways are good if you've got the time. I just never have the time. I really never, ever have the time. You know.
0: Sure. Um, today we were going to talk about Iron Maiden. Are you still yep. up for that?
1: The Maiden.
0: Uh, and you the very... are you are
1: their number one fan at this point, aren't you?
0: Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm up there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a there's a rotating top five, but I'm usually in there. Yeah.
1: Who could be more number one than you? <laughs> Who know. could there's... be more
0: of a power slave than you? I think I think you're the power slave by the sound of way, the way you write <laughs> your books.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> no,
2: I'm
1: just running free.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, Running Free was another Iron Maiden biography. You didn't write that one. But you did write the official Iron Maiden biography back in 98. But uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, when you first came in contact with the band, do you remember when you first heard the term the new wave of British heavy metal? Were you writing back then? And what did you think of it? Were you interested in it?
1: Not only was I writing back then, um, but the idea of doing a story for sounds called the new wave of British heavy metal was offered to me. Uh, by Jeff Barton. And he had this idea. Actually, I think it was Alan Lewis who was the editor in those days. A, a wonderful guy. Very smart. Very funny. Big drinker. And um, because the new, Wa- new wave was the thing at the time. And one of the uh, uh, kind of counterweights to new wave was the fact that heavy metal was considered the devil well not even the devil it was considered a desperately sad old man locked in an attic that we don't talk about and alan had this kind of typical alan idea to do a thing called the new wave of heavy metal uh which sounds quite cool all these years later but at the time just sounded so naff um, and then it was jeff barton who finessed that and said to El, why don't we do two stories? The first will be on the new wave of American heavy metal. And the second story, at the time, the lesser story, would be a new wave of British heavy metal. And so they agreed to do that. And Jeff was going to do the American, because that would have meant going to America.
0: Of course. <laughs> uh,
1: so, uh, And in fairness, he he was that guy in those days. Um, I'd never actually been to America at that point. And so he rang me and s- sold the whole concept to me. And it was like, so you will do the new wave of British heavy metal. And my heart sank because... <laughs> I'm like, what are you fucking, like what, like who, you know? And he said, well, there's this band in Sheffield. And I'm like, Sheffield? (laughs) Fuck that. You want me to get on a train and go to Sheffield to talk to a fucking bunch of unknowns that have never had a record out? Yeah. He said, well, no, no, there's some in London. You know, there's one out in East London. I'm like. East London. You know, that's like the shittiest part of London. Yeah. Um, and no Google Maps, you know, no mobile phones. You have to like get an A to Z of London and see where the buses went, Yeah, you know. I'm like, wow, that sounds so shit. And he goes, um, and there's a there's a heavy metal disco
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh called the bandwagon. And they play a lot of this uh, new wave metal music. I thought, God! And he goes, and they they have um, they bring their own toy guitars. <laughs> I'm like, wow, this gets fucking better and better. How shit is this? But at the time, I was uh, twenty, and uh, I'm like, oh, absolutely! Oh, that sounds amazing, you know. Um, thinking, how do I get out of this? Um, And then literally at that same moment, it overlapped with me being offered a job as a regional press officer for a publicity company called Heavy Publicity. Yeah. And they did Sabbath and Journey and Dire Straits and all these people. Um, And it was 50 quid a week cash Uh, which in 1979 was not to be sniffed at. And it just sounded much more fun. And uh, so I literally had to ring Jeff back a week or two later and offer my profound apologies because I I was so looking forward to (laughs) writing about this fucking load of rubbish that he'd come up with.
0: So um, th- this is interesting because Jeff Barton is always credited as the person who, a lot of the time, probably incorrectly credited as the person who came up with the, new, the term, the new wave of British mm-hmm. heavy metal, but definitely right. credited as the person who championed it or one of the early champions of it. So are you saying that Mick Wall could have been not famous for a Guns N' Roses song, but fa- being famous for championing the new wave of British heavy metal had you uh, picked a different path?
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, Jeff drew the short straw because... Uh, At the time, I think there were literally only three people on the magazine that would write about metal. and Jeff was one, I was one. The other one was Pete Murkowski. And Pete was away in Thailand doing one of those, I'm away for nine months with a backpack. (laughs) Okay, yeah. So Jeff couldn't find anybody stupid enough to say, well, I'll do the new wave of british heavy metal story i mean it just sounded it stank it reeked of a terrible alan lewis after the pub at lunchtime idea you know the new wave of british heavy metal i mean oh for fuck's sake (laughs) um so jeff ended up doing both pieces and i don't know who he did in america you know i was i was gonna ask yeah who at the time I think there was a band in New York called like Riot.
0: Oh yeah, Riot. Yeah. Uh,
1: uh, I don't know. You, you have to look it up. I can't remember. But suffice to say, none of those groups made it. While well, in Britain, he actually hit a he hit a, a rich vein. I mean, um, the band in Sheffield was Def Leppard. The band in East London was Iron Maiden um and then there was samson and diamond head and all these others all of whom turned out to be fantastic um not so much samson but definitely diamond head um and but it was a long 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 time before i ever thought oh oh did, did i did i fuck up there what happened there you know it was years later. I mean, I remember reading the thing when it came out and just having to sort of sneer. You know, it's <laughs> only gonna done it Fucking yeah. hell. now. And you so, know, uh, yeah, go on.
0: I was going to say, uh, what what do you think made the bands like Diamond Head and Iron Maiden and Def Leppard stand out above the rest of the pack? Because there was a big pack, and many of those bands are still playing to this day at much smaller venues and smaller festivals. Mm.
1: But, Yeah, go on.
0: I was just going to say, say, what what did did you at the time? I know you moved on and you went into publicity, but even as somebody involved in the industry, do you recall what made those bands stand out above the rest?
1: The same thing that always makes a band stand out, and that's the material. Um, There are other aspects which are equally important. You know, what do they look like? How do they come across? Are they good on stage? Can they, can they really put on a show? But none of those, nothing gets you through the door other than the material. So it so happened that Iron Maiden and Def Leppard had gone down that punk road of uh, putting out independent EPs. The maiden one wasn't at all independent. EMI were completely behind it. Um, Leopards, I think, was initially, and then Phonogram kind of re-released it. Um Diamond Head, uh Diamond Head were the ones that were supposed to be the Led Zeppelin of that yeah. movement. They were the ones everybody was tipping
2: for the really big, big stuff. Um And what buggered them up was the fact that the
1: singer's mum was their manager. Hot tip kids, don't get your mum to manage the band.
0: Didn't she turn down some large record deal or something in the early days, which kind of they never recovered from?
1: They turned down everybody. I mean, Peter Mensch, who went on to manage Def Leppard. Peter lived in London in those days and was just embarking on his own career as a manager in his own right. He'd worked for Lieber Krebs, who did Aerosmith and ACDC and Ted Nugent and loads of people. But him and his uh, business partner, Cliff Bernstein, were just setting up their own management company, which became Q Prime, which by the end of the 80s, they managed Metallica, Def Leppard, Queensryche, um oh my god, loads of people. I mean, they went on to manage Cameo, the Stones, Lenny kravitz the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I mean, it's endless. Um, and Peter was really interested in Time and Head. Um, and that all came to nothing because Mum, I'm sure Mum was being I, I don't know because I never met her, but I imagine mm. she was doing her absolute best. And probably or wanted to prote- and, and protect her boy from the sharks. Yeah. Um, so Mensch passed uh, and picked up Def Leopard. Mensch also tried to sign Marillion. Right. But Marillion was so parochial, they didn't like the idea of an American managing them. So they settled for an English guy. was a a decent guy but was basically like the band's best mate Uh, tip number two don't get your best mate to manage the band Um, so number one it was the material you know Maiden had some great songs you know running free uh, I can't remember the early stuff what else was on the very early stuff Uh,
0: Prowler Um, they had an early single Sanctuary which was Released on the Metal for Mothers compilation, I think.
1: Yeah, that was a great track. Um, Leopard, for me, were the standouts. Uh, About a year after, a year and a half after I turned down the story, uh, we were approached at heavy publicity to see if we'd like to take them on. And they sent us a six-track demo. And at that time, we were working with Thin Lizzy, and a few other, ACDC, a few other people. And it was fantastic. I mean, I just thought it was, loving Lizzie as I did, it was like Lizzie, but not Irish. You know, the two guitars, the whole, I like the idea that they sounded like they had great singles as well as albums. Yeah. That, for me, was always the holy grail, you know. You've got the greatest album, but you've also got the greatest single, you know. Um, and we went, my partner at the time, Joe O'Neill, uh, we went to see them at the Hammersmith Odeon. They were either opening for Sammy Hagar or ACDC or someone. Um, and you know, we, we were out every night seeing bands, so we're not easily impressed. We said, well, we'll give it three numbers, fuck off to the bar, and we'll say a polite hello to them afterwards. <clears throat> Stood and watched the whole thing with my mouth hanging open. They were fantastic, young, really colourful. You know, they didn't have that sort of Maiden or Metallica thing of none more black. You know, it was all yeah. like bullet belts and armour-plated wrists. You know, none of that. No capes. <laughs> um, they, they just looked like they could have come from the glam era or the punk era or. They just looked fantastic. Colourful, sharp, never stopped moving. And one brilliant song after another. My, my favourite was Wasted. I used to love that song. Mm-hmm. Wasted! Something, something, something. Wasted!
2: Something, something, something.
0: Fantastic. Okay, but you touched on something there that I wanted to go back to. So you said that Iron Maiden's EP, The Soundhouse Tapes, wasn't independent and EMI were behind it. I don't recall mm-hmm. ever hearing that before. Um,
1: oh, well, perhaps you have not read my remarkable official biography.
0: I've I read it a number of times. I don't remember that coming up. Maybe it was removed, was it? Because <laughs> the, the whole fairy tale is that they did it themselves on £200 over a couple of days, uh, New Year's Eve and the 30th of December, 1978. Um, they pooled all their money and blah, blah, blah. But obviously, that that's a better story than EMI funded it. <laughs>
1: They kind of set the template because um, they did do that to make a demo. Um, but since then, I don't know about now because no one buys records, but throughout then the rest of the 80s and the 90s, it became commonplace for major labels to say, we'll put out a single or an EP and we'll say it's on your label." Because that confers credibility, authenticity. But we'll distribute it. And we'll do all the publicity and get you in the magazines and get you on a tour and all that stuff. But that's your roots there. That's your grassroots. Now, I can't tell you sitting here, I can't tell you definitively what the story is there. But uh, I think if you look in the Rod Smallwood section of the book, pretty sure Rod talks about um how that worked in terms of the emi deal um but i mean i wrote that book so long ago sir, but i can't remember the actuality
3: <laughs> I,
0: I recall rod small getting them like a five album deal with emi based on the strength of the Soundhouse tapes and their their live performances at the time and he went around all the local offices and gave them a bottle of whiskey and blah 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 yeah, that's that's what i recall anyway
1: <laughs> well uh that story jeff wrote on the new wave of british heavy metal that was crucial that's that was the starting gun on all the labels going ah something going on here because um i'm always having to say this so forgive me but it's important to emphasize There is no internet, there is no social media, there are no phones. There's not even any telly or radio. There's one national radio station in the UK and they wouldn't play metal if you put a gun to their head. Mm. They had one specialist show that used to go out on a Saturday afternoon, uh, that Alan Freeman did. And then when Alan Freeman went over to Capital Radio, Tommy Vance took over from Alan. And they started doing it on a Friday night. They called it the Friday Rock Show. So metal was ghettoised in the sense that you couldn't hear it on Radio 1, um, but you could listen to it for two hours on late on a Friday night. You know. So um, unless you were a pop star that was going to be on top of the pops, The only avenue for album-oriented artists, particularly metal, as it was then so unfashionable, were the music papers. And the NME wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Melody Maker would do it once they got as big as Queen. Uh, And Sounds, Unleashed, would do everything. And so, um, but that would guarantee you a certain amount of sales. So a lot of the labels were looking at it like... Um, and I sat in a lot of these meetings. They were going, well, they're a metal band. That means they know how to play. Because most of the punk bands did not know how... Even the Sex Pistols, they had to bring in Chris Spedding to play the guitar, and obviously Sid couldn't play, you know. And um, uh, yeah. these metal guys could play. And they had these songs. And they spent hours writing these fucking epic songs. We'll get them in a room. We'll just recall them, cheap, 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 bang it out. Sounds will cover it. We're guaranteed ten to twenty thousand sales, even if it's shite. <laughs> um, and 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 so that's kind of what happens. Very short term. You didn't care if they were around next year or the year after. Um, so. The bandwagon, Neil Kay's bandwagon, had its own chart, which sounds would print every week. And the Soundhouse tapes was like number one forever. Partly based on the fact that Neil Kay really liked it. Partly based on the fact that um, the bandwagon became very popular and people started to go all the time. Based on the fact... That they had this charting sounds and iron maidens tapes were number one you know it became a like i say no social media so you had to your little club your secret society your cool house was somewhere like the bandwagon um and so it was all it was all kind of interconnected um but rod had big label connections you know he'd been in the business already for quite some time and he had connections at EMI
0: and do you remember so or how you felt or what you thought uh when paul diano ended up uh leaving iron maiden after the killers album and was replaced by bruce dickinson we we talked mm. uh, we touched on samson a bit earlier um bruce came from samson and replaced paul diano and iron maiden they were kind of quite established at the time and it was a, it's it's a, um for another band, that might be a very difficult juncture to lose your lead singer.
1: I was going to put a fan on for, I'm sweating. I hope that isn't going is to that going to mess with the audio.
0: I can't hear it anyway. So, Good.
1: um, what were we saying?
0: I was just saying, do you remember how you what you thought when you heard Paul Diana was leaving Iron Maiden and to oh, be replaced by Bruce Dickinson?
1: Um. Well, it was a bold thing to do. You know, their their first album had gone in at number four. The second album hadn't done as well. Um, The second album had a terrible review in sounds. Only two stars. Do you know why? I told you that story, I'm sure.
0: I can't remember, but for the benefit of those listening, should go on.
1: (laughs) The review was written by a female writer called Robbie Miller and robbie miller allegedly was shagging paul diano
0: ah yes
1: she you know he used to wear that gun belt Mm. he used to tell people that she liked him to take that gun belt off and whip her ass with it (laughs) Okay. (laughs) she was a northern lass and she knew what she liked um and then just before uh, they'd finished killers, and just before they were sending out the promo copies, and again, don't forget, only four music papers. only one of which matters to Iron Maiden at that moment, which is sounds. He broke up with Robbie. He, 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 you know, he was shaggy. He was a shagmas. He was a singer. Was fucking anything yeah. that moved. Um. So I don't know if she found out about it or if he just moved on because he was a geezer. Probably said fuck off, Robbie. Gee, I'm fed up fucking spanking your fucking ass. Fuck off. Guess who reviewed the album? Well, and, and guess who only gave it two
0: stars. Two was probably generous. She could have given it one.
1: Well, Steve Harris. I met mean, him saying to me, "I told him. I said you could have fucking waited till she reviewed it and then fucked her off." <laughs> fucking idiot.
0: Just just before we go on, I think the fan is interfering with your mic. I can hear oh, a, lot, sorry, a lot more wind. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Sorry.
0: <sighs> sorry if you can sweat it out for another bit.
1: Fucking hell, Fergal. I hate to tell you this, but I haven't plugged my amp into the laptop. I don't know if this is... Uh... You're recording it, aren't you?
2: I am. Your amp? I don't know what you call it, mate. I'll show you. Hang on, it was working. Yeah. What's going on here? Just bear with me, bear with me. Are you working? Oh, fuck. It stopped working, Fergal. Are you recording all this?
1: I'm
0: recording it on Zoom as a backup, so we're, we're okay. The- oh,
1: gold. Well, we're now back up, but I have no idea at what point it stopped.
0: That's, that's fine. Bummer, isn't it? It, it, it doesn't matter. I can get the Zoom audio. That it, it, like it's it's fine. It it's only the, the it's slightly lesser in quality, but like it, it'll it'll do the job.
1: <laughs> you see what I? Every time we do this, I fuck it up technologically. I'm so sorry. I'm fucking useless. That's that's the actual word for it. Um. So where were we?
0: Paul Diana was whipping the sounds journalist with his bulletin. Oh pulse.
1: yes. <laughs> yes, yes. So um that wasn't why they sacked him. I mean it goes into this in the book, but um there were lots of things, but the 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 final straw was when they had to start canceling gigs because Paul was too fucked up to do the show. You know, he was a party animal. Everybody was a party animal in those days. Um, You know, these are the days of uh, go down the pub at lunchtime, have five or six, uh, go out again in the evening and have a drink. You know, you just drank all the time, Mm. especially young guys in bands and especially singers. Um, And, of course, he would fuck up his voice. And by the time you get to the Killers World Tour, they're opening for big bands, you know, they're... It's no longer just a, a, a pub band from East London chancing their arm. There's now possibly millions at stake down the road. And uh, and Paul made it worse for himself. He used to quite often uh, come in the dressing room at the end of a show and pretend to faint. Yeah. Um, you know, Steve said uh, it, it, was, it was amazingly lucky that whenever he fainted, it was always right on a couch, you know, happened to be a couch there. Yeah. <laughs> he never just crashed on the floor and smacked his head, you know. Mm. So they just got fed up with it and, um, and decided, because the next album had to be the one. After Killers was such a disappointment, the next album, it was do or die. And they were going to go to America and, you know, the meetings that would have been had at corporate level, international level, it was, are we just going to be written off as a joke or are we going to show them we mean business? And so they got rid of him. Uh, Steve Harris has always been very pragmatic. I mean, you know, he, 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 he would get rid of people, even if you said to him, but well, that could be the end of the band, Steve, give a fuck. He's a cunt, get rid of him. Um, and where they got lucky, because everybody needs luck, was when they, they got Brucey. Um, I mean, it was a bit like a Premier League football team picking up a, a striker from a championship football team. You know, he, he, he'd obviously done well in Samson, and he had a good voice. On paper, he kind of fit the bill. But I don't recall... I can't recall any Samson tracks particularly where Bruce sounded like he did in Iron Maiden, you know, incredible voice, range. Um, His early nickname was the Air Raid Siren. Yeah. Maiden fans used to call him the Air Raid Siren. Um, I don't remember any of that in Samson, probably wrong, but I don't recall it. So they got him in because he was available, he was handy. It fit on paper, but what no one I think really anticipated was the huge impact Bruce would have. You know, th- this was a guy who knew this was his chance, and he grabbed it, he grabbed it. And um, he was very lucky that Maiden came when they did, and they were super lucky that uh, he was the one they came for.
0: Do you remember being around the band much at that time? I know you wrote a a review of Paris labor I think, in 84 for Kerrang, which you were then working for. Would you have been backstage? Would you have seen them in the flesh much?
1: No, not really. My, my next brother down, David, he's seven years younger than me. And uh, when that first Maiden album came out, he would have been about 15. And he was mental for them, loved them. And a friend of his had a connection, and David... Had a chance to work for them as a roadie for a few shows. Um so I did go along and see him Um
2: with Bruce. No. No, with uh with Paul. Okay. Hang on, let me think. 82, that's Bruce, isn't it?
3: 82. It would be Bruce, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the air raids. Yeah, it was Bruce. Because my brother fancied himself as a singer, and he saw himself okay. in that Bruce Dickinson, Ronnie James Dio mode. Okay. So yeah, it's Bruce. Yeah, and and they were great. They were fabulous. But I mean, you know, those are the days. Where I was, as I always say, I was out every night seeing bands. You know, um, uh, so I probably spent most of it drinking and and leaguing and chasing girls except there weren't any there of course
0: <laughs> maybe after a few drinks some of the long-haired man might have you know looked, looked well now looked.
1: Fergal, well now well, we seem to be going back to uh <laughs> what's that book you're reading
0: uh um Ryan yeah what who Brian Gerwirtz huh? look him up um <laughs> okay. So, uh, do you remember in the mid-80s, there's a famous story, and you did cover it in your book, where Bruce Dickinson had submitted material for what became Somewhere in Time, and Steve um, discarded all of his songs. He didn't want anything to do with them. Do you remember hearing about a power power struggle in Iron Maiden between Steve and Bruce at the time? Bruce
1: came to my flat. Yes. Um, He used to live in Chiswick, and I lived in Ealing. and Chiswick and Ealing are a bus ride from each other. There's two suburbs next to each other. And um, I can't remember what the reason was, but he came to my house, my flat, and um, brought his acoustic guitar uh, and sat in my tiny lounge uh, and started telling me all about how he'd been writing these incredible songs for the next Maiden
2: album. The one after Power Slave. And uh i don't
1: I don't think it was necessarily that they were acoustic I mean he played them to me on an acoustic guitar
0: yeah
1: he played me three or four and it was very kind of you know the men from the mountain you know <laughs> through the sky grained with thunderbolt. You know. um and uh, this went on and eventually, thank God, he stopped. You know, because it's good to hear on the record, but in your lounge, you know, all right, mate, you know, take it easy now. Let's have a beer. You know, um, turned out he'd been doing that to a lot of people. Okay. And Steve got to hear about it, but these things, you know, it, it's how it's how the information is delivered to you. And there were definitely a lot of people around Steve who go like all kings court court, court, court,
0: court, court you know, jesters.
1: who oh. come running up to, "Hey Steve, fucking hell! You'll never guess what Bruce is going round playing people the songs from the Oh is he? Well, fucking see about that, you know." As opposed to someone not doing that uh, and maybe giving Bruce a chance to get in and play the songs for Steve. Years later, when I interviewed Bruce for the book, um, he told me that uh, the way he saw it at that moment was Maiden had done really, really well Peace of mind, power slave, live after death. But he felt they'd kind of gone as far as they could, uh, which was a long way and perfectly good enough. But it was like being, um, it was the same fear that Metallica had around the time of justice for all. It was like, is that it then? This is us now.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're yeah.
1: kind of like the kind of like motorhead, but a bit better. But we will never be Bon Jovi.
3: Mm.
1: Bruce's thing was, We're not Led Zeppelin. Bruce's thing was, This is good, but to get to the next level, we really have to mix it up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Power Slave. I'm sure you told me Loss for Words was one of your favourite tracks. <laughs> Bored Egypt. Honest to God. Uh, uh, loss no. for Words. It's I probably, mean, just
0: the
1: top... Go on.
0: It's probably 150th uh, in my top favourite Iron Maiden tracks.
1: 150th in the list of 150. and um, That's a terrible track. I mean, it, it shouldn't be on an album. It should be on a B-side or, or, or something. Um, I mean, even the title loss for words get it mm-hmm. um a slightly different era where albums came a lot quicker and you could uh, get away with a few more throwaway bits and pieces um but i agree with Bruce. so I, I, I think they had gone as far as they could go i mean for me peace of mind is actually a better album than Power Slave, even though Power Slave has two minutes to midnight, I think Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is always worth putting in there. Um, Aces High was good. Uh, but I think Peace of Mind was a better all-round album. Uh, and certainly Steve Harris always thought that. So I, in retrospect, I have a lot of sympathy for what Bruce was trying to do.
3: Yeah.
0: He
1: was saying um, kind of like we've done Led Zeppelin 2. We need to do Led Zeppelin 4. Where is our stairway to heaven?
3: Sure. I know, I, get-
1: I know Robert, <laughs> the man from the mountain came down the hill.
0: So oh, sorry. Well, look, I, I had heard that story before, but um because I inter- told you
1: it, that's why, yeah.
0: But it's interesting to hear a different angle on it, which I hadn't heard before, was that Bruce was going around to many people showing them his potential new songs for the, the upcoming album. And do you think that's what that's what annoyed Steve more, that he was going around town showing off his music rather than coming to Steve and Steve was putting them in his place or that Steve just didn't like the songs?
1: I don't think Steve ever heard the song. Steve just said, fuck that. He's not having anything on the album.
0: Right. Um... He was professionally annoyed at that, basically.
2: I don't know if it was professional annoyance. I think it was right. personal
1: pissed off. What is that fucking guy doing? It's my band. I'll say what goes, you know? Steve was a dictator. Um, okay. Every band needs one. You know, in Guns N' Roses, it was Axel, In Zeppelin, it was Page. Um, in Sabbath, it was I In Purple, it was Blackmore. You know, there's always one... I mean, Motorhead, Lemmy Mm. was the biggest fucking hitter in the world. And and again, like Steve Harris, to his own professional detriment, you know, getting rid of people that he should have held on to for precious life, all because it pissed him off and this was his party and he'll tell you when it starts and finishes. So Steve Steve was
2: 28
1: at the time. You know, strong, strong personality. Very much an alpha male. Hard case from the East End. Tattoos. Hair down his waist when punk was everything. As far as Steve could tell, Bruce was a public school fucking Nancy. You know, oh, I do fencing.
0: Do you, posh boy?
1: Fucking fence this thing. (laughs)
0: <laughs> but the, do you know what you know what's funny like to me is that like there's this discrepancy in, in, in their personalities they're like very different from one another but they've coexisted on twice you know this time for a lot longer and like
3: it, like
0: it, it, it's the fact that like the way you've just painted the picture of Steve there that's the way he's often portrayed like in the media and things like that but that he coexisted with somebody who's so different from him um for like decades I just always found fascinating
1: well, um, that is the story behind nearly all the great bands. Uh, none of the doors could stand Jim Morrison. They fucking hated him. He was a
2: complete fucking arsehole as far as they were concerned. Yeah. Um, Axel and Slash. Very similar
1: in the sense that Axel, from this incredibly dysfunctional, very poor, broken home. The kind of dysfunction you can only really find in the Midwest of America. And here comes Slash, born into a very rich family, all of them in the music business, in showbiz, growing up in LA. Two completely different people. But you know what they say, opposites attract. And when it works, it works spectacularly. But when it doesn't work, it's, it's a catastrophe. It's, it's the end of the world,
2: you know. Now, first time round for Bruce, how Steve coped with it was,
1: you know, everybody's younger. We're all coping with all kinds of shit we wouldn't even think twice about in our 40s.
2: Yeah.
1: They haven't made it forever at that point. They're still building the empire. Bruce is clearly an integral part of that because because all this fun I make with Steve. Steve is very very intelligent. He's also very very sensitive. He knows what time it is, as they say. He understands things. Um, but the iron rule is this: is his band. You know, he sits on the iron throne. He's the one with the dragons. <laughs> uh, and as long as that's fucking clear, you get to stay alive mm. um so how he coped with it first time around was he would never do an interview with bruce and you'd never see the two of them sitting side by side on telly or radio or magazines he wouldn't even sit next to bruce on a plane i'm sure i told you this story last time where the final i think it was a final show on the power slide tour it was in japan and a like 13-month tour, the tour from hell. These days, that's more normal. Back then, it wasn't normal. It really did not come with a lot of comforts.
3: Mm.
1: Um, and their tour manager, Tony Wiggins, I told you, he, his previous job had been with Gilbert O'Sullivan, uh, and he was a terribly nice man. He wore a cardigan and slippers. You know. Oh, come on, Steve. You know, um, And as the tour manager, it was his... Job to allocate the rooms where people sit on the bus or the plane. And the, the the night before getting on the plane, everybody's drinking and saying to Tony, Tony, it's the last flight of the tour. Just for a laugh, you must seat Bruce next to Steve.
0: Right. No, no, I haven't heard this before. Go on.
1: Oh, okay. This is great. Um so early on, they go, oh, no, fuck, it. you must, I oh, couldn't possibly yeah. More drinks, time passes, and you get into that zone of, <laughs>
2: it's like,
1: oh, all right then. No, oh, I suppose it would be quite amusing, you know. Mm. 13-hour flight from Tokyo to London. And, of course, the band are in first class. But their personal assistants or anybody else working for them are sitting in economy. And um, uh, every one of them have what was called a Percy. It's your personal roadie. Oh, yeah. Steve's Percy was this big half Maori guy called Rangi. Tough motherfucker, you know. So Rangi's sitting in the back of the plane, bandering first class. And Steve's sitting there having his beer or whatever before they take off. Next thing... In the seat next to him. Hi Bruce! Uh hi Steve! You know, it's mm. Bruce. I'm writing a novel. Would you like to read some? You know. <laughs> Steve, look, he Steve's eyes are only coming out of his head. He can't believe what he's undoes his seatbelt, storms to the back of the plane to Wiggins. The fucking are you fucking? oh, oh, it must be some mistake. (laughs) He goes, yeah, well, you go and fucking sit next to him. And Steve (laughs) made Wiggins go and sit in first class next to Bruce. And Steve sat in Wiggins' chair in Economy. Anything other than put up with 13 hours of fucking Bruce.
0: So did Bruce know Steve didn't have much
3: time for
2: him? on, On some deep level. He must have done. But, you know... Bruce had this thing. We used to joke because uh, he wouldn't talk to you; he'd talk
1: at you. Mm. I remember he always used to look at like the centre of your forehead, and you got the feeling that if you just moved to one side and someone else came in, it wouldn't disturb him at all. He'd just keep going, you know. And we used to have a joke where we'd say, you know, after the gig at the hotel or some club or whatever. If Bruce captures you, what you need to do is get a fiber out and wave it behind your back mm. so that someone will come along and take that fiber and literally just shove you over to one side and take your spot because Bruce wouldn't miss a beat. Right. You know, he was so busy telling you how great he was. And he's going to pilot a plane, he's going to go fencing, he's he's writing a book, and, and he. Blah, blah, blah. Mm. everybody was like
2: "Oh, so I think I think Bruce must have known because everybody did try and
1: well a humor him and b kind of escape him Um, Mm. but he had that very public school thing of I don't know what it's like in Ireland I'm saying this might be different for public school boys in Ireland but in England it's incredible self entitlement. This, this complete sort of lack of self awareness. Yeah. Anybody might think you're a bit of a fucking asshole. No,
0: you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's it's this. Yeah, it's on. the same over here. But a public school, what you're referring to as a public school, is called a private school over here. But um, right, yeah, it's the right, it's yeah. the same um kind of personality traits you're describing. Yeah. But, I mean, broadly yeah. speaking.
1: Yeah. Just no. No uh, sense of I might be boring anybody or my wonderful projects might not be as interesting to the rest of the world as they are to me. Um, And it's kind of what makes them successful in some ways, but also very boring to be around a 13-month world tour. Um, Second time
2: around, we're at the beginning of the era of classic rock you know sabbath
1: are going to come back kiss are already back um efforts are being made to put led zeppelin back Uh, anybody that once had a name could come back the big stumbling block was always but i hate that guy Mm. i left that band for a reason um I mean, KISS are a great example of that. Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons have hated each other's guts
2: for decades. It just gets deeper and deeper. Um, But the mechanisms
1: are now in place whereby you don't have to share a dressing room. You don't have to share that space that would drive you nuts. I mean, they started doing it, but by the time you got to the, the Seventh sum Tour of America, 88? Yeah. The band are travelling in one tour bus, and Steve Harris is travelling in his own tour bus. And his excuse at the time was, well, I've got my wife and my kids and the nanny. It's not fair to the boys that my screaming kids are everywhere and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's a fair point, but it also meant he didn't have to be on the bus with Bruce, yeah, and and listen to all of them moaning.
0: (laughs) So, like at at this point, that they turned into this kind of traveling machine, um, that you hear about a lot of bands turning into. You know, they start off as comrades and they get their early success, and then they just turn into this kind of uh, business enterprise separate buses did like i don't know if you were backstage in any shows before and after maybe the reunion but if you were did you notice any difference in what it, what the atmosphere was like what it was like in
3: general
2: um the rest of the band
1: uh oh no adrian left of course um Adrian and Bruce Bruce had a good writing relationship, and then Adrian was able to work without Bruce. And I think they both felt completely inhibited in the original Steve Harris vision of Iron Maiden. And they'd already earned a lot of money uh, uh, through having their songs on Maiden records in the days when that sort of thing would make you money. So they felt comfortable enough to say, okay, I've, I've put in my time. I want to give this a go now and try material that Steve wouldn't want
2: coming out. And of course, it didn't work out for either of them. Mm. And they eventually came back. Um,
1: so Adrian always seemed like he was holding a little bit back. I mean, he's a very reserved person anyway. Quietly spoken, He's not at all compulsive. Um, so you wouldn't necessarily have gone, oh Adrian's a bit quiet. But he was always quiet. Yeah. You know, Rod Smallwood used to make a joke about saying, you know, when you get the menu out in the restaurant, by the time you've had your meal, Adrian is still choosing his starter. You know? <laughs> um so he didn't really notice, you couldn't sort of go, Oh, what's up with Adrian? You know. Mm. Um, Bruce. Uh definitely, definitely the temperature dropped. After he put out that first solo album, he did all the young dudes and all that stuff. Um, I think he he really felt he had it made. Seventh Son was the kicker for Bruce, you know, because he came back with a vengeance on that. He wrote some great songs, it was their most successful album. On this side of the Atlantic. And I think he was really feeling good about his chances. And I think, uh, a bit like Robert Plant with Jimmy Page, you know, it it was a dream not to have to count out a Steve anymore. It was a dream not to have to ask permission uh, to pursue a certain musical direction. It was a dream to have what you thought was a great idea, a cover of all the undoes. I mean, Steve had just gone, fuck off. There's no way. Yeah. Um, And Steve would have been right. It was dreadful. But Bruce could do it. He had some success. So, yeah, it felt um, when Adrian went and Yannick came in, I thought they'd really messed with the balance there. Personalities. Yannick was a really wonderful guy, Um, but it felt a bit bolted on. It felt a bit like Last Days of Empire. It wasn't a surprise when uh, it was announced that Bruce had left. No, it wasn't. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But it wasn't Bruce the one who wanted to bring in Yannick, because he'd worked with him on a solo album. or No, he'd worked with him on the, the Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter.
1: Which was a Bruce Dickinson solo song. Yeah. And then Steve Harris heard it and went, yeah, I'm having that. Um, <laughs> it's exactly what he said. Yeah. I do fucking do that. I'll have that.
0: There seems to be a team developing here as well. But <laughs> the thing that's funny is that Bruce just gives it to him each time. Like, you know, like there was, there was the same with them. Um, If Eternity Should Fail for The Book of Souls, which was many years later, Bruce had said he was writing that for a solo album as well, and Steve heard it and wanted it, and Bruce just gave it to him. And apparently a lot of Bruce's solo album was hanging on this concept and this song. But if Steve wants it, he seems to give it.
1: Well, in fairness, you earn a lot more money by Iron Maiden doing it than you do Bruce Dickinson doing it as a solo artist.
0: Sure, Um, but in, in 2015, how much money does Bruce Dickinson need, really?
1: Ah, now further. I will tell you, I will tell you now what my old accountant, a very fine Irishman named Frank Dunphy, once told me. This was after Sharon Osborne had ripped me off for about 100 grand. And, um, and I said to him, Frank, what does she need a fucking 100 grand for? She's got millions. 100 grand to me is game-changing. You know, hasn't she got enough money? Ah, now, Mick, there's no... I I can't do the Irish accent in front of you. It's too cringy. Um,
0: Thought you were doing well.
1: (laughs) uh, (laughs) Ah, now, Mick, one thing you've got to understand, there's no such thing as enough. There's never enough for these people. And, And in a way, it figures because psychologically... If they were the kind of people who went, oh, "I've got enough now," they would never have got to where they got to.
3: Yeah. If well, but enough you think was there...
1: enough, they'd have had a regular job and, and gone home at night, you know, as opposed to chasing around the world after fucking criminals and lunatics on drugs.
0: Do Do you think though that there's this thing in the band where they still, that the despite what their personal differences might be and water under the bridge and things like that. Do you think they all still want to please Steve at the end of the day?
1: They have to figure it in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, I toured with Francis. This time last year, I was on tour again with Francis Rossi, um, who was 71. And Quo have had, I think, like 62 hit singles in the UK, 43 hit albums um and he's the fucking boss there's no mellowing out there's no kind of well i've had a there's that thing of enough well you know i've authored dozens of hits over four decades sorry mate what was your idea again yeah let's do that no it doesn't it just tunnels even more and the difference is is that um by the same token that Bruce and Adrian had a go and it didn't work. They made some good music, but it finished their career. There was no career. Um, Steve with Blaze almost finished his career. Uh, I, there there's some great tracks he did with Blaze, that I still like. Mm. Um, but the last time I saw Maiden play with Blaze in the group was at Nottingham Rock City. Yeah, the last time with Bruce, I think was three nights at Wembley Arena. You know, mm. um, so they all had to, they all had to come to some kind of agreement, compromise, arrangement, and, and the arrangement basically boils down to Bruce can do what he's like as long as he doesn't get on my tits. How do you <laughs> stop him getting on your tits? We keep him as far apart as possible. Yeah. Uh, Bruce's thing was, um, I'll come back, uh, but I've got to have Adrian. Uh, and in the same way, I mean, at that point, they should have got rid of Yannick, but they didn't because by then Yannick is now Steve's fucking man. Dave Murray was always Steve's man, but Dave really is pussycat. He never says nothing. Yeah. Not in that Adrian, slightly moody way. But in a real Cheshire cat, here's a guy that was born fucking happy. He's going (laughs) to die happy. He writes one song every few years. It's not the greatest song. It's it's Dave, you know. This dude is going to live to be 200. He's so easy going. (laughs) So, So not much good in a battle of wits. Yeah. And then there's Nico. Well, he might think he's on Steve's side, or he might think he's on Bruce's side, but they don't fucking want him on their side. You know, he's Nico. Keep him away. Um, uh. So it was, it was a, it was a different way. Of, you know, they weren't kids anymore. They weren't building the empire. All their careers were fucked, or let's say they were at a crossroad just as the classic rock thing is starting to really look enticing and lucrative. And they had promoters around America, uh, CBS in America, Sony as it was in America, saying, listen, uh, we can put some big dough into this, but it has to be Bruce. It has to be. Of course, it has to be Steve and it has to be Nadine. So uh, Steve had a choice, carry on with Blaze and end up doing clubs. Is the top hat in Dublin still there?
3: No,
0: it's gone a long time. I've heard it mentioned many times. So I think Nirvana played there years ago.
1: Uh, first time I went there was with Ozzy in my 88. And um, yeah, great, great people. Uh, anyway, um yeah they'd have been doing clubs uh so so i, I don't think it's okay you know the, the way they were first time around is is gone um and now it's just a much more worldly pragmatic you know they're not doing 13month world tours anymore they're not doing seven months in america trying to break america I mean, what do they do there now? Uh, six shows or something
2: um
3: well yeah it depends South on america. the tour but yeah.
1: so it's a lot more comfortable a lot of course there's a load more money now you know there's no money in records anymore but in live there's a shit ton. Mm. merch there's a shit ton. merch is what made iron made millionaires uh, not mm. the music it was the merch
0: I'd say it's still making them a few million. All right, we've been going over an hour now, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. One question I would like to ask you, though, maybe to finish up is, um, you obviously wrote the official Iron Maiden biography. They've re- since released two editions with different people writing those additional chapters. You you explained to me before why that happened, but has there ever been any discussion about you bringing that book up to date in the 20 years that have passed, or 20, 20 years since that have passed since you first wrote the first draft?
1: no. Um, It's very, very complicated.
2: Um,
1: I was at one point some years ago going to write my own Iron Maiden book. Mm. Uh, And when Rod found out about it, he paid me not to. Right. (laughs) Um, And then a little bit after that or around that same time, It transpired because the book came out on Sanctuary Publishing, which was part of the Sanctuary Group, which was owned by Rod. And there was this moment in the early 2000s
2: where uh, uh, Rod and his partner, Andy Taylor, um, were
1: ousted from Sanctuary. In fact, Andy Taylor had to be escorted from his desk. And there was an awful lot of this is, there are computers at this point, but there's still a lot of stuff being just done on pen and paper. Mm. And in order to transfer the assets, and da, da 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 da, I'm trying to keep it short and not get myself into too much trouble. But there was a bit of shenanigans around. The book, and it turned out they'd been selling it in all sorts of ways and in all sorts of places without telling me, and more importantly, without paying. Right. And um, in the music business, trust me, they're thieves. You know, I mean, the promoter who did the Rossi tour, did the Thunder tour I did, and some other things—a fucking thief. You know, just I didn't find out until until I found out. But the music business is a den of iniquity, you know. So this is commonplace. Um, but book publishing in London is not. I'm not saying there aren't chancers and crazy people, but it's much more mature business. It's not thick kids off a council estate being ripped off. You know, there's smart people in publishing and they will take you to court. Uh, and the agent I was with at the time was about the most powerful in the UK with amazing legal team. And they put the frighteners on the maiden hierarchy. I don't think the band ever had any involvement in this or any knowledge. nor would they have wanted to? Artists yeah. never want to hear this stuff. They would pretend they didn't hear it. Yeah. Um, and so it muddied the waters and um, You know, I'm not that safe guy in a box. You know, one of the reasons I got the gig in the first place was because I was known uh, to be a member of the club. You know, I I never wrote anything that would embarrass them or that I knew, you know, they would not want to be out there. Yeah. Um, And I lost that a long time ago. I left that club a long, long time ago. And, um, A year or so ago, two years, Steve Harris was being hawked around that Steve Harris was going to do his own book like Bruce had. And they were looking for a a ghostwriter. And I wanted to throw my hat in the ring. Um, But I never heard... I didn't go to them. I did it through my agent. And as far as... Well, nothing happened. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, But if it was someone like Steve... Steve was a friend. I, I love Steve. I so respect him. Um, I would work with him in a second. If he wanted me to do it, I would do it. Um, but it's it's tricky because, you know, the people that made them rich made me poor.
0: Okay. Yeah. that Well, that makes a lot of sense. It's not a straightforward business transaction, by the sounds of it. <laughs>
1: are we gonna we can do more of this another time if you like
0: yeah sure absolutely well it, yeah um i uh would you be like still about iron maiden or about something different or
1: anything you like
0: yeah anything. absolutely sure yeah i'll come up with some ideas yeah um i'll add it that bit out there <laughs> but yeah that sounds great we'll leave it here then for this one will do you want to do a little sign off or something like that
2: Yeah, all right then. Yeah, we're going to leave it there. My thanks to Fergal, a fine man. Do visit him
1: if ever you're in the old country around Dublin Way. He'll be there in a little backstreet tavern playing Loss for Words on the jukebox (laughs) and imbibing a Guinness. With the West Ham United up the annals, carved into the white, lush head of his Guinness. Yeah, I think that's
3: really
0: excellent. Good, good stuff. All right, thanks, a Million. That was great. Um, heard uh, a good few things I'd never heard before. Uh, I'd say a lot of people have never heard before, so that's always interesting. That's what you want. <laughs> the The stories are out there, but the, all the um the extra bits are, aren't out there. So it's great when you when you get those. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right, Fergal. Listen, thank what's you up? so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I'm going to uh, send you the MP3 now, okay?
0: Do you, do you think you have the whole MP3, though? Probably not, based on I, what happened.
1: I, well, no. Definitely do you know stop. A... Yeah, go
0: on. You can send me whatever you have, and if, if it's usable, I'll use it, and if not, I'll use the Zoom audio. I'll I'll get on it tomorrow. All
1: right. Hang on. Let me just uh, see what we've got here. You said we've been doing, what, about an hour and... 20 and 15? What do you have?
0: I'd say about an Aaron 15.
1: All right, well just give me a second, I'll tell you what how, how long
0: errand 14 I have.
2: Okay,
1: give me a second. Is that me or you? It's me. Oh, okay, good. I'm gonna have to wait for it to finish bouncing. Um, but I'll I'll let you know what the length of it is as soon as no it worries. comes
0: up. You, re- you stopped recording there anyway, did you? Yes. Yeah, okay, I'm that's now, great. Yeah. I'm now getting it onto the MP3 for you.
1: Now,
0: um, yeah, sure, whatever you have anyway, just send it on.
1: All right. So how are you all keeping? Right. You okay?
0: Oh, good, yeah. Not too bad at all. Um, just plugging away. You know, You've been doing that, a lot
1: of traveling this summer.
0: I was. I, I was in Copenhagen, and I was in... Um, where else was I? oh i was in uh, america a while back um off to canada now in a couple of weeks as well
1: are you Whereabouts? ottawa fantastic i've never been i hear it's very nice
0: i've never been to canada at all no a friend of mine is getting married so uh, we're heading over there for 10 days Um, Wow! yeah so i'm looking forward to that
1: fantastic fantastic in copenhagen did you drink any elephant beer
0: no, <laughs> I never didn't see it anywhere. No, it was at a festival, so like
3: we, oh, we did
0: okay. we did go out and around, like we were in a place called Nyhaven, and we got some food out a few times and stuff like outside of the festival. But no, I didn't have any elephant beer, mainly Tuborg and Carlsberg.
1: Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was in Copenhagen when Metallica were doing Master of Puppets. Uh, I went to visit them in the studio and uh. I remember there was about six feet of snow on the ground. It was the middle of winter. And afterwards, they took me out for some elephant beer.
3: Right.
1: And i I tell you what, mate. It was a bit like, I don't know if you've ever been to Wales and drank Brains. That's the beer in Cardiff. Yeah, don't forget that one. Brains. We went down to Tiger Bay in Cardiff and got a pint of Brains. Uh, It was a bit like that. It was so strong. It was almost psychedelic. You know, you were like, you're like <laughs> psychedelically pissed after about yeah. four four pints.
3: All right. Um
1: right. yeah, yeah, it was it was uh fucking huge. Right, hang on, I think I might be able to. Oh no, it's still fucking around. All right, look, I'll send it to you as soon as it's finished.
0: Yeah, that's grand. All, All right, right Fergal, Lovely speaking okay. to you. You too. I'll chat to you again.
1: All right, take it easy. All right, easy. see you
0: later. Bye.
1: Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye.
0: All right, so that was Mick Wall talking about Iron Maiden, and I certainly learned a few things from that, and I hope you did too. And if you're listening for the second time, thank you for listening again. That was on his podcast called Mick Wall back in August 2022, and I've posted it here really for the benefit of the people who didn't hear it uh, back at that time. So if you didn't hear it, I'm glad you've heard it now. So that's Mick Wall talking about Iron Maiden, and there's going to be even more from me in December 2022. Keep your eyes and ears peeled for feckin' metal episodes. I've been your host, Fergal Trainer, and I will see you next time.